Rockheads, this is Carl with an update on Music to Code By. On January 4th, 2016, I released the 11th Music to Code By track, Gold. That's right, there are now 11 25-minute tracks, including the original three. And you can download them all in one big zip file for less than 50 bucks at mtcb.poit.com. Net Rocks, episode 1279, with guest Rob Eisenberg. Recorded Thursday, March 17th, 2016. Holy Aurelia, Batman, it's .NET Rocks. <laughs> that was a good one. How are you, Richard? <laughs> Uh, you know, plunking along, you know, we're in that weird time now, right? Where we're recording shows that'll be published after Bill, but it's still before Bill. So, mm. it's like everything we may talk about today could be wrong. But it probably isn't. But probably not. We're talking to Rob after all. Yes. Stuff doesn't change that much. Well, you know, because Microsoft changes doesn't mean Rob's going to change probably. No. We'll be okay. Yeah. I hope I don't eat my words, but there you go. <laughs> Uh, We're about to find out. I have something interesting from the world of IoT to share with you today for the Better Know a Framework segment. Awesome. All right. What you got, dude? Well, this is called Platform IO, and it's platformio.org, or of course, you can you know use the naming convention 1279.pwop.me. Nice. This is an open source ecosystem for IoT development. It's a cross-platform build system. It's continuous and IDE integration. It's Arduino and embed compatible. In fact, it's compatible with over 200 uh, embedded boards, more than 15 development platforms, and more than 10 frameworks. Wow. The code itself is C and C++. And uh, and it is completely cross-platform and all of that stuff. So it's getting a lot of buzz lately in the world of IoT. And there's a lot of people that are supporting it and using it. And it is simply a write-once-run-everywhere solution for boards and IoT. Nice. This is not just a library. This is a whole development environment. It's an ecosystem is what they say. Yeah. Nice. There you go. You can find it on GitHub, uh, platformio.org. So who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off a of show 1097, the one we did about a year ago, Mr. Heisenberg. We talked about Aurelia more or less for the first time. Mm. And we have done a couple of shows since then, but not with Rob. We did them with, uh, when Scott Allen was taught waxing poetic about Aurelia, when Julie Lerman was waxing poetic about Aurelia, you know, lots of people very excited. And this comment comes from Mark Mitchell, who says, this was a great show, and I, for one, am very pleased to see it on the list of podcasts. I got to hear Rob talk at the Orlando Code Camp in 2013, was totally impressed then with his design approach. Mm. I looked into Durandal and watched it evolve. I spoke with others about in other technical events about Rob's work, and it's generated a great deal of interest. I was stoked to hear that he was going to help with Angular 2.0 and, and add his design ideas onto one of the major players in the JavaScript framework. And I was speaking at our local user group in January, 
that I would like to volunteer to give a talk at. And we discussed how, how we had not heard anything from Rob for a while. Mm. We did not know what was going on until he posted about Aurelia that very day. And so that's now my topic of research. I gave myself some months to get ready for it. But I'm hoping that Rob will come down and do a presentation for us down in Atlanta. Of course, it's a year ago. Maybe he's already done it. Uh, and encourage everyone to be there. And by the way, he added on to this, I hope you will pursue Sebastian McKenzie about the 6 to 5 transpiler. It's really cool to see such neat code being built. And for those who don't know, 6 to 5 is Babel. Yeah, they changed the name. More people are working on it. So, And we have done that show a couple of yep. weeks ago at this point when this show comes out. So. Uh, Mark, thanks so much. We got Rob back to talk more Aurelia, and hopefully he will be uh, working with you and uh, showing off that good stuff. And a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of the social media. We post every show to Google Plus and Facebook. If you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And, of course, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's Rich Campbell. And send us a tweet once in a while. We fill our gumball machines with him. And that brings us to Rob Eisenberg. He is a widely recognized UI development expert, the creator of Caliburn Micro and Durandal, and a former Angular 2.0 team member. And of course, he runs Durandal Incorporated, whose first product is the illustrious Aurelia. And now he's here to talk to us about what's new in Aurelia land. Rob Eisenberg, how are you, sir? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. You, uh, you come up in a lot of conversations that people are having. <laughs> I hope it, in a positive light. <laughs> oh, of course, of course. Uh, a lot of people using Aurelia, a lot of people very happy with it. And um, of course, Angular 2.0 is out now and, you know, people are making comparisons and things. And right. I don't know. How do we start this conversation? What have you been up to? Man, it is, yeah, as you said, it's been about a year since uh, we did the last show, and it has been an amazing, amazing year. Um, when we did the show before, it was very shortly after we announced the early alpha of Aurelia. Yeah. And now we are uh, in beta since November, and we're rapidly approaching a release candidate. Um, I'm not sure, the show will probably be out before the release candidate, but uh, we're hoping that that's going to come very soon after that. So, um, you know, in that year, we've had just a huge explosion of interest um, from the community. So I'm just looking at, you know, statistics and things. I was uh, just checking out our GitHub stars, and we have over 7,200 GitHub stars. Wow. And wow. That, that's happened just literally in one year. Um we, we've got a Gitter chat room where developers are just kind of talking and helping each other out. And that's got almost 3,200 people in it, um, approaching a quarter of a million messages. Uh, <laughs> wow. Uh, so there's just a huge uh, community growing up around it. There's a lot of contributors, too. Um, we've, we've got a, a core team that's dedicated and always working on that. And that's about 15 people strong. But in addition to that, there's been... Over um, over 300 um, other contributors to the project already in the first year. Um, so just it's really been amazing to um, to watch that happen and to see that grow over these last 12 or 13 months into a very um, uh, excited and very active community contributing and building all kinds of stuff and helping one another. 
Um, it's, so it's been a really exciting year as we moved from the alpha through beta, as we're approaching the release candidate, as we've stabilized the technology, as people have started to build awesome things and talk mm. about it. And, uh, yeah. and it's just, uh, it's been cool. It's been really cool. Well, I hate to do this to you right off the bat, but I'm going to talk about Angular 2. <laughs> <laughs> Man, everywhere I go, everywhere I go. That's fine. Well, yeah, no, it, it's it's important conversation to have because this is something that people have had experience with now. And one of the things John Papa said about it uh, was that it's a lot less angular, like it's a lot less opinionated. There's a lot less ceremony associated with it. And, um, so yeah, here's your opportunity to take some credit and maybe, uh, compare that to, uh, what you've been doing. Sure. Well, one of the main things about Aurelia, which I think is fairly unique among all the JavaScript technologies for building front end apps today is that it really favors the notion of convention over configuration. Right. So in so many cases in Aurelia, you can just write a plain JavaScript class or a plain TypeScript class. We support, of course, modern JavaScript and TypeScript. And you don't have to really do anything to it. You don't have to inherit from a special base class. You don't have to add a lot of metadata. When you're writing your code, you're writing your code. And the framework is very smart about that and just stays out of your way. Probably the closest framework uh, to Aurelia in that respect is Ember, mm. um, which is also an excellent choice of a framework. Uh, but in, in Ember's case, of course, you do have to do things like um, inherit from the uh, some base classes and call their APIs just to set up basic things. But in Aurelia's case, it's possible to write entire applications without ever actually importing into your app code our library itself. Mm. So the library is there running, if you will, uh, kind of in an ambient fashion, understanding uh your exported classes and the conventions for how things go together. And you can just write pure vanilla JavaScript. And in that respect, uh, Aurelia is actually unique. I have yet to see anything, anything else like that at all. And so this is a big difference, not just between Angular 2, but between every other front-end framework today. And there are tremendous benefits from this. I mean, you know, this being .NET Rocks, much of the .NET community here will remember the progression that has happened in .NET land mm -hmm. over the last decade or so, where um, the frameworks, particularly things like ASP.NET and, and MVC, have, and, and also things like um, the data libraries, have gradually sort of extracted themselves out of developers' code. Right. And in the early days, things were very heavy. Um, there was a lot of uh, attributes you had to put on things or special base classes or all these sort of things. But then when you fast forward to sort of the modern .NET Core MVC technology, you see that you can build these MVC apps and your controllers don't even have to inherit from a base controller. Yeah. You know, your entities don't have to inherit from a special entity class. And the frameworks even in .NET land have really extracted themselves out of app code. And there's just so much, so much learning has happened, you know, in the .NET community over the last 10 years about the benefits of this in terms of maintainability right. of code, extensibility of code, the ability to evolve the code and, and to uh, teach it and to read it and understand it because of those things being out of the way. So are you saying basically there's a, you, there's a script tag that links to your library and that's it, right? Yeah, basically we're built on modern JavaScript modules. So once you import the library, you kind of kickstart the framework, a little bit of bootstrapping code. And then once 
that's done, you've got plain uh, JavaScript classes for the most part, and then you write your views. And views are written in HTML, uh, and they have a very basic, simple um, binding language. It's really easy to learn and remember. There's no strange symbols or it's anything. Just the, it's, is it just the formatting of IDs, pretty much, or what? Uh, no, but it's. Let me. I'll tell to you what it is, basically. Sure. So you can data bind any attribute in HTML simply by appending to that attribute um, dot bind. So wow. you can say value dot bind, and then you can put an expression in there. Say like uh, on an input tag, you can say value dot bind equals first name, and it will data bind it to the first name property on your class, and that's all there is to it. Wow. Um, because it's an input element and you're data binding the value, it knows you probably want two-way data binding or bidirectional binding so that uh, as you type in the input, it flows it into your view model. As you, Or if you change the view model, it flows it into the view. But you can actually say dot .bind on any HTML attribute in the DOM, uh, and it will data bind it. Usually it will use one-way data binding because that's what, what makes sense, but for form inputs and things like that, it'll use two-way. Um, and so, and then there's, there's obviously there's a bit more to it. There's a few sure. of other things, but it's all kind of uh, along those very simple and easy to remember um, concepts. And so your HTML actually stays very clean. It's easy to see where mm. the binding expressions are because if you see a dot in anything, that that's the convention. Everything has a dot in it if it's actually invoking our binding engine. So you can very easily see that, tell what's a, a binding expression versus what's not. Um, and we just try and be very consistent. So by combining that with just pure JavaScript in most cases, you get a very clean programming model where the framework stays far out of your way as much as possible, and you get to reap the benefits of that. And it's advantageous for us on the framework side because it means that we can actually rev and evolve our framework underneath you um, yeah, without, without breaking, breaking your code, your code as yeah. much. Yes, yes. And this is some of the fantastic feedback we've had in the last year where um, we, we didn't have a fully stable API until beta in November. So we were making breaking changes along the way. But in talking with customers, what we heard because of our general approach is that the process, even from the alpha stage all the way up through today, has been very easy to kind of move along. Um, because it stayed out of your way, the, the breaking changes didn't affect developers as much. Um, and so that's been a really neat to see that that idea kind of come back even in the early days of helping our community to adopt. It's great. I can think of a few other libraries out there that had created a lot of pain for the developers each time they were updated. Yeah, I mean, it's a real part of software development. You they have all did. To, and when you're designing a framework, you know, you have to think about how is migration going to work? Um, how, you know, what's going to happen five or 10 years from now um, with your library or as the web changes? And, you know, obviously we, we expect and hope for Aurelia to be around for a very, very long time. But, you know, we also want to think about our customers and help protect their code. And so this is one of the ways we do it, because what it means is, you know, if if some reason a company needs to move away from Aurelia or something happens or whatever, the majority of their code is not actually dependent on Aurelia because all the really interesting bits in JavaScript are mostly in plain JavaScript. Sure. So it gets easy to exactly. migrate. All those binding statements will be just ignored by everything else. Exactly. You don't even have to clean them up. So you can fix the HTML up real easily. The JavaScript pretty much remains the same. Yeah, and uh, and you move and you move on. Um, so that just provides a lot of, I think, um, security for people and understanding that. Rob, I remember when we were talking the last time, you were explaining to us one of the 
key differences between uh, your philosophy of how you were working with Durandal and uh, Angular. And I do remember, and I don't remember exactly what it was, but I do remember you were doing something really cool, either with eventing or a loop in the background that was a, a lot more efficient than the way uh, Angular was doing things. Can you refresh my memory on that conversation? Sure. The way our data binding system works. Um, so Angular 1 and Angular 2 are both uh, based off of this notion of dirty checking, which means that at certain periods of time, uh, it literally has to loop over your models and check all the properties to see whether they have changed. And if it detects that a change has occurred, it refreshes the DOM. Now, Angular 2 is much, much, much more efficient at this than Angular 1 was. But really, it takes a completely different approach, which is uh, that it, it doesn't use dirty checking. It uses observables or observations. So, Eventing, um, basically. Yeah. And w as a result, um, we know exactly what changed when it changed. However, what we do that's a little bit different is we don't immediately update the DOM when a bound property changes. We uh, queue it up, basically. And that gets queued on something called the micro task queue, which is um, uh, there's not direct API access to it in the browser, but you can kind of hack into it if you know what you're doing. Hmm. And basically what we do is this allows us to delay the bindings in a queue, but then run that queue uh, until it's empty uh, as soon as possible after the user's code has finished. Hmm. So if you have a click handler and you change a lot of properties, that's not updating the DOM right then. But as soon as your click handler exits, then we take that entire batch of changes and push it to the DOM. And because That's really cool. Yeah, it, it's, it's it's it makes a huge difference because of this batching that we do. Um it makes a big difference on performance because we we can aggregate all the changes and apply them all at once and so you don't get uh, layout and render thrashing in the browser. You think about this, it's sort of the same way WPF works under the hood, isn't it? Yes, and it, uh, it's actually been really fascinating because, I mean, as you guys know, I'm, I have a big history in XAML and as we've been writing Aurelia, of course, I, I always try and learn from all the things I've done in the past and bring the ideas in that I like. But one thing that's been interesting is some concepts from XAML have sort of snuck up on me again. As mm. we were implementing things and finding the best way to do things, I would realize to myself, oh, you know, this is how it was actually implemented under the hood, uh, you know, this particular concept in WPF. Uh, we have these uh, things called, I was just, I had this realization just a few days ago, we were looking to do some optimizations um, we're always doing optimizations, but we have this thing called a view slot and it represents a location in the DOM where we add and remove views from. And it's just an abstraction that we use to do that. So we can generically apply animation and do things efficiently. And um, right now, view slots always have a collection of views, an array of views, even if there's only ever going to be one view in the slot. And so that's kind of inefficient. So we were thinking, well, we could have kind of a single slot and a multi-slot. And based on what you're doing, we could uh, use the appropriate one. And of course, that would reduce memory. We wouldn't have these arrays that when we that weren't needed, etc. And then it occurred to me, wait a minute, like, in WPF, we had the um, items presenter and the content presenter. And one of them was for presenting just one uh, content node, and the other one was for presenting a bunch of items. And so uh, it occurred to me that, you know, this was probably an optimization that the, um, the WPF team made at some point. And here we were, looking at optimizing Aurelia and kind of coming to a similar conclusion 
Um, you know, the names and faces have changed, if you will, but it's, it's the same story um, uh, behind the scenes. So really, really interesting stuff. Um, yeah. Really fun. You know, you say we pretty much use vanilla JS uh, behind the scenes. Are you talking about like doing our own XML HTTP request objects and getting callbacks and doing all that stuff? Or, or is that sort of folded into what you guys are doing in the framework? So that's a really excellent question because something else that's very different about Aurelia is that it's highly modular. And um, we provide a core and then we provide a number of optional modules. And uh, so we provide an optional, optional module for HTTP. So you don't have to worry about dealing with the low-level XML HTTP request object if you don't want to. You can simply uh, install our HTTP module and you can do get post put delete with that. So it's really up to you, though. If, if you want to use our library, you can choose to take that optional dependency on, or if you want to build your own, or if you want to go find some other third-party library, you can do that. Um, you know, hmm. so it's we're highly modular. There's a lot of uh, seams or plug-in points within the framework. Even our data binding language I was just talking to you about is not hard-coded into the template compiler. It's actually the notion of a, a syntax for binding is extracted out of there. And we, we did this just to help ourselves in development early on when we were experimenting with different syntaxes for binding because we wanted to change it really easily. Um, and as a result, that just helped things get decoupled. So if I want to, I can use your high-level stuff and just say, you know, here's my request. And when I'm done, here's the data. It's bound to this stuff. Or I could get my own HTTP request, get my data. And then, you know, once I have it back in my callback, I hand it off to you somehow and and Aurelia does all the things it needs to do with it? Yeah, you can use whatever library you want. The way that you would build a screen is you basically you'd create a class that represents that screen. Mm. And, um, and components and navigation in Aurelia have a particular lifecycle about them. So we've got a router. It's an optional component. But if you plug it in, that it effectively maps um, URL patterns to modules which export a class. So it knows when it sees, uh, you know, WAC customer that it should go get your customer module which exports a plain vanilla class and that class is going to represent the state and the behavior for that customer screen. Mm -hmm. And then it also knows, well, I've got to render this somehow. Uh, so it says, okay, well, there's probably a customer HTML file out there that has the template or the view for the screen. So it, it just knows to get that, it binds them together, you know, it instantiates both, binds them together and renders it. And then whatever properties and methods you have on that customer class are available in the in the templating language to bind to. Um, so all you would do is you would basically just, you know, go fetch your data however you want. And when it's returned, you just set it as a property on the class. Got it. And then, and then the view will update. Yeah, just like we do in MVVM. It's pretty much, exactly. that's it. Yes. Yeah. It's very obviously inspired by that and um, just keeping a very clean separation between, and we, we call it a view model. Um, so we talk about components, and that's kind of our broad term, which encompasses what we call the, the view and the view model. So the HTML piece and the JavaScript piece. Um, so it's very much a, a view, view model pattern. Uh, inside of this kind of component world. And you build everything this way in Aurelia. If you want to build a whole screen, you write a view and a view model. If you want to create a custom HTML element that you're going to reuse uh, you know, as a widget all over the place, you create a view and a view model. Um, if you want to create a modal dialogue pop-up, you create a view and a view model. Um, your whole app 
is just a, an app level view and view model. And so this this concept is basically how you build all the pieces and you just compose them together. And it really it provides you the different ways to do that. You know, it provides you custom elements that you can compose with. It provides you the router. So you can have this navigation that helps you compose these components. We actually even have a custom element called compose, which lets you dynamically um, construct UI based on data. So you can say, oh, I've got this data back from my server and I can see that this employee is a type manager. Therefore, I actually want to compose the manager component rather than the direct report component, say, for example. And so that can all happen at runtime based on data, and it's all declarative. So this notion of components and composition of these pieces is basically, you know, as I say, turtles all the way down. Uh, everything is done that way. So <laughs> once you learn this fundamental pattern, that's just how you put all the pieces together. You know, I was going to ask you how the heck you ended up with 51 projects in a year, all in Aurelia. <laughs> And now you've just explained it. You've you've taken all of these elements and separated them so your guys can work on them separately or anybody else. And you only include what you actually want to use. Exactly. Just like the way .NET is built, more or less. You know, it's that same modern architecture of building out, you know, dot .land, it would be, uh, .NET land would be like building out different assemblies and breaking those pieces apart and then just kind of updating whatever uh, you want. As long as the version numbers are compatible, you know, we follow very strict semantic versioning, then you're good and you can get that parallelization. So we have team members that work on just particular parts of Aurelia. Um, and so, you know, we've got a couple of people that just work on the router and that's pretty much all they do. We've got uh, one guy that pretty much all he does is work on the data binding engine. Um, you know, we've got people that stick more into templating or that work on dependency injection, these different pieces. And so they're allowed to focus in and become experts in those areas. And then we can also uh, rev those pieces independently of the entire framework. So if we have a bug, we can turn around and just ship the fix immediately. We don't have to sync up across everything as long as it's a semantically compatible version. Um, so yeah, that, there's tremendous benefit to, to building things this way, not just for uh, everyone that's listening that wants to use Aurelia, but for us as a development team being productive and uh, e evolving the platform over time. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is. Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah. It's time to set joke.bind equals data layer dot grab a witty joke. Humor level equals low. Callback equals, uh, well, nah, I really don't want to hear it. No, <laughs> no, you just make it asynchronous. Just let me know when you find a funny joke. Oh, that was asynchronous. I just, I can't, <laughs> I can't provide a callback. I just don't want to hear the joke. Oh, okay. <laughs> you close the socket. Yeah. Actually, it's time to uh, give away a Telerik DevCraft collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, have you ever used a product that was so bad you wondered whether the people who created it had ever used it themselves? Well, Telerik's been building the best UI controls in the world for over a decade now, but more importantly, they've been using them in their own projects. That means they know what it takes to build real-world apps, and Telerik knows what makes developers want to pull their hair out, too, having shed plenty of their own. No more silly Northwind demos. Get real UI for real applications. Download Telerik DevCraft today and enjoy the most complete set of user interface components for .NET desktop, mobile, and web development. Check it out at Telerik.com slash DevCraft. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Jeff Lutzenberg. Yes. Congratulations, Jeff. 
Golf clap for you, sir. Golf clap for you, sir. And Jeff just won the Telerik DevCraft collection, a big pile of awesome from our friends over there. And if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors, and every December we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .net Rocks fan club. But you have to sign up to win. And now it's your turn, Rob Eisenberg. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology right now, what would you buy? Well, I think I said this last time I was on the show, but I'm sticking with it. I, I need to get one of those hollow lenses. Uh, oh. Now that the, the price tag is out, I think I'll need the 5000 <laughs> Yeah, I think you will. Yeah, <laughs> uh, That would be my first choice. They are not inexpensive. Well, you know, this is coming out after build, so who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Exciting times. Yeah. Maybe we just learned something last week. Maybe we did. In which case, <laughs> let's say you got your HoloLens. What what else do you want? Man, I need some... Uh, I don't have any of uh, the 4K monitors happening in my setup. So, I think there would probably be about three of those happening. Sweet! You know, having multiple monitors is a huge productivity boost. I, I use uh, two monitors in my normal setup, but I'm definitely at a point with my workflow where uh, I could definitely use a third monitor. And I just love the way, just being a developer, um, you spend so much time looking at text. Right. And, uh, and on a high resolution display, uh, text just looks fantastic. And it's really uh, much easier on the eyes. And um, it's just the code, the literally, literally the code looks beautiful uh, and yeah. on that type of display. So that would, be, um, that would be what I would be getting next. That's great. I on my list for restoring the basement is adding a new 40 and I'm pretty smitten with this Philips 40 inch. Yeah. Cuz I that one you can run at normal DPI so you don't have to scale anything. Mm. And what's the uh, resolution on it? It's it's a 4K so it's 3840 by 2160. Wow. But at 128 DPI so you don't have to scale it. So uh what does that run by the way? Uh 1200 bucks. 1200? Yep. That's great. It, the only thing I could say negative about it is its response rate is not super high. So, if you were gaming, it would smear. But I want it for development, so I do not care. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think I may replace my two 30s with one of those. And, it, and that's the whole thing I feel with resolution all along has been give me a DPI so that I don't have to scale it. I know we're getting better at scaling. I just think it's a waste. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. So, I want to use my pixels. Yeah. <laughs> So, Rob, what's the latest version of Aurelia and uh, what's new in it? Uh, well, I mean, as I mentioned, we've had uh, the beta in November. That was kind of a period of stabilizing the API. Mm -hmm. um, and we've got, uh, you know, over the last year, we've just had so many incremental changes. We've got, um, we've got some really cool stuff that we're going to be pushing out um, in time for release, which is, uh, this is actually just talking about things that are unique about Aurelia. Um, we have this thing called a view pipeline. And when you write your HTML views, you can require or import different, we call them resources, into your view. So this is very much like, again, uh, I'll make a parallel to XAML. If you wanted to write a custom element, you know, custom component in XAML land, you kind of need to bring that namespace into your XAML, right? And right. then you can use that. So we have a very similar concept uh, in Aurelia's views. Only thing is that when you require something into a view, when you import something into a view, it's not just custom elements. It's actually 
what happens there is it invokes this, this import pipeline. And you can actually write code to plug into this pipeline to uh, transform all aspects of the view. You can change the data binding language. You can add custom elements into the view scope. You can add custom attributes into the view scope. You can plug into all these hooks to, to do things before or after the view is created or before or after it's compiled. Um, and this is a, just extremely powerful because it, it just opens up so many possibilities. And one of the new things that we're adding to that is the ability to actually add data scoped into the view besides just the view model. Uh, so that if, for example, uh, you know, especially in line of business apps, you have this, uh, these scenarios where you have this list data that is used across so many screens, like your list of cities and your list of states sure. and all this list data. And traditionally in a model view view model kind of a, a scenario, you'd have to kind of bring that list data into your view model and then set a property to that and then data bind it in your view. And that was kind of the only way to get access to that data in certain contexts. So we're actually extending our view pipeline so that you can actually import um, data into the view um, that can augment that uh, Basically, that quantity of bindable data. Because it's static, right? It doesn't change. So it's not exactly. like... Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But you can do amazing things with this because it, this, this doesn't have to do uh, with just static data. So we have an experimental plugin. Um, one of our uh, core team members has been working on. And it uses a new technology that's being worked on called CSS modules. And CSS modules is this approach to doing CSS where the CSS is encapsulated and the styles only affect um, the component that it's imported into. And um, it's actually a framework independent technology that's out there as a library. And what it effectively does is it lets you write your CSS and then it compiles it into a JavaScript object where the properties on that object are the names uh, are the names of your classes. And the values of those properties are some munged uh, name of a class or combination of classes. And what this allows it to do is to generate styles into your page with these munged class names. And then um, you never use the actual class names in your HTML. You simply reference these variables. The net effect ah. of this is, is that you get scoped CSS. So you can write uh, classes nice. for a particular component and the styles that you use in those components, even though they're global, uh, because of the way the system works out, they will only be applied to the contents of that component's view. They will never leak in and nothing will ever leak out. Yeah. Uh, so this is huge for large-scale applications. This is kind of a missing piece of component uh, architectures. And uh, with this new extension point, what we're able to do is fully support CSS modules. Literally, what you do is you would require in a CSS file um, and tell the pipeline that you're using CSS modules and what it would do is it bring that CSS in, compile it into a CSS module, and then give you that object dynamically, which has all your class names as properties. And then you simply data bind to it in the view. Um, and so it doesn't just have to be like static list data. It doesn't matter how the object is created or how the data is created. In this case, it's being created from CSS and provides a really nice capability uh, for componentized CSS in your view. Yeah. Uh, but it's this fundamental... Um, uh, capability of Aurelia through this pipeline, which enables us to take this new technology, which is written independent of Aurelia, it was actually um, developed by the React community. It right. lets us be able to write a plugin to Aurelia that teaches our pipeline what to do with these CSS modules and how to handle them. 
and then make them available to the views. Wow. There's other things too. Uh, um, let me give you another really cool example. Okay. Uh, so the CSS uh, module plugin was written uh, by Brian Smith. He's one of our core team members. And before he wrote that, uh, he was experimenting with React integration um, because he, he thought to himself, could we write a view engine plugin for Aurelia that would let you take any React component without changing its code and use it inside of an Aurelia view as a custom element? And lo and behold, the view engine pipeline is powerful enough to do that. And he wrote a generic plugin. And so actually using his plugin today, you can take any component that was written with React, any component, and simply drop it into Aurelia and use it um, natively. And our data binding engine works with it. So anytime uh, you data bind to its props outside of the custom element, the React engine will re-render the component internally. So he used this to just write this bridge, that bridge between Aurelia and React. And it's just a view engine pipeline. Um, and it does a bit of metaprogramming against the React component to sort of um, create this bridge layer that goes between Aurelia and the React component. So you never have to change the React code at all from its original source. You mm. just use it in Aurelia. Nice. And then we said, okay, this is cool. Could we do this with Angular? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and a few days later, he had a, he had a plug-in for AngularJS 1.0 that uh, allowed Angular directives to be used directly inside of Aurelia. Um, wow. So this is the power of Aurelia, and this is something you won't see anywhere else in any other framework. This is this really extensible view pipeline that's really it's kind of like about your imagination here. You know, like th it has this set of hooks into this view that you can now start to think about what is my ideal developer experience? So I would need to integrate with these other libraries. Uh, what's the optimal way that that should be? Can I write a plugin that mm -hmm. will do the heavy lifting for me? So yeah. then I have a really easy development workflow. And that's really a kind of a core philosophy of Aurelia is to have these scenes and these correct abstractions that allow developers to write a little bit of code in some cases to teach the framework these new tricks. And then that results in them as developers having a much easier uh, time getting their jobs done. And of course, people will publish these tricks, if you will, out as modules or plugins to Aurelia, which is what the React one is. It's literally a plugin. You install it, and now you use React components inside of Aurelia, and that's it. When people ask me about the differences between, you know, I'm thinking Aurelia and Angular and stuff, and what what I tell them is that if you're a C Sharp or VBNet developer, a .NET developer, um, that Aurelia is going to remove a lot of the webbiness of uh, of this stuff, that whereas Angular is a little bit more, uh, there's a little bit more webby stuff. Do you know? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, what we're trying to do is strike a balance. We want to be, um, uh, we don't want to abstract the web away, and we want to help developers learn the native way, but we want to also surface uh, the technology in ways that's uh, that makes sense, especially to classically oriented developers. Obviously, I have a big .NET background, mm. and um, there are kind of ways that I like to build things, and that's obviously reflected in this. So we want to kind of we want to make it approachable. Um, if you start from scratch and if you have no, if you don't have a serious web development background, it's going to be very, very hard. And even sure. picking up some of these fra other frameworks, it's going to be very, very hard. Um, but yeah. with Aurelia, what we try to do is, is take things that people know and understand from non-web development and imagine them in the context of web development. Yeah. And then that lets us bridge kind of uh, create a knowledge bridge and an experience bridge that makes it easier to learn. And then by also getting the framework out of the way in general, that just makes things easier. 
Sure. I think think we can underestimate, and I hate to go back on this a little bit, this this whole reality of the problem with web development really seems to live in CSS these days. And we've been groping around trying to find the right way to contain it. You know, React is an approach. It should stand for contained style sheets, not cascading. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. um, There's a project. uh, It's cool to see some of the innovation that's going out just in the library space, like the CSS modules. If you Google that, you'll find... Uh, CSS modules out there in the spec and some of the libraries that people are working on. Um, but there's also um, some stuff going on uh, in the uh, W3C uh, space. I believe it's W3C that's doing it. Uh, new specifications for CSS to actually pull back the curtains of CSS um, and allow developers lower level access into the browser's rendering engine. Uh, this project is hmm. called Houdini. Uh, and it's just, yeah, exactly. Cause yeah. Um, nothing up a sleeve. Yeah. It's really cool because the idea is what if, what if we gave access to the layout engine to developers and they could simply write a function that laid out elements and then that named function could then be applied via CSS, just like any other layout algorithm or, what if instead of having the static notion of background color and background image, what if a developer could get a drawing context and paint into it and then apply that drawing context through CSS the same way they do background images and colors? Woo! Blowing my mind. Yeah, all this kind of stuff. And it's kind of like, okay, it's looking at CSS and saying, okay, there's, it's this huge black box. Right. Let's break it open and let's try and find some of these abstractions for, for drawing and for layout and then give the developer this low-level power. And the idea is, and this is part of this uh, uh, open web, uh, extensible web manifesto Mm. um, that a lot of people have signed now, myself included, which is about taking the web and basically dropping down lower level and thinking about giving the developers the building blocks that they need. Instead of creating massive amounts of high-level, single-purpose APIs, Let's think again about the lower level building blocks that need to be there. In other words, if we took CSS and we kind of reverse engineered it, what will be the low level primitives that you could use to implement the high level things that we have today? And so as an experiment, for example, some of the people working on, uh, on Houdini have actually taken the Flexbox layout model and implemented it using the new hooks that they're designing to see could the actual Flexbox layout be implemented in terms of this new technology. And that's the idea, to kind of reverse engineer these pieces and then build a set of APIs around them so that everything that we have now as high-level APIs could actually be constructed on top of these lower-level APIs. Reimagined in a way that makes sense for modern development, not for this disconnected yes. you know, three-layer. Web layer. components is a part of that as well. Web components is basically saying, well, we're looking at HTML, what are the primitives that are that we need to have in order to be able to construct the set of HTML elements that we have today? And so that's when you start with, okay, well, we need the ability to create custom elements, and then we need the ability to encapsulate uh, regions of views with something called Shadow DOM. You know, we need the ability to have style encapsulation, and these other pieces that are part of web component spec are out of this, uh, this con- concept of the extensible web and kind of reverse engineering the high-level pieces back down to low-level APIs that w- then we can then rebuild up from, if yeah. you will, 
as much as we want. So we can take sort of off the shelf what the browser provides, or we can drop down and say, well, I want my own layout algorithm, or I want my own paint algorithm, or I need a set of custom elements. And Aurelia is kind of living in this space as well, because it works with uh, web component technology. Um, and with this view engine pipeline, you know, we'll be able to do some pretty amazing stuff in the future yeah. as uh, some of these other specs come online as well. Rob, I don't want to let you go without asking you about mobile development and native mobile development. There's a lot of frameworks out there now that take JavaScript, HTML, and CSS and turn it into a native app for iOS, Android. And uh, I don't know where to start with that. I mean, do you, do you, are there any frameworks that you know Aurelia works with well? Are you guys planning on doing anything in that regard? So our core philosophy and what we're staying with right now is really focusing on the open web. Um, that's kind of what we see as the future. In all honesty, I hope the uh, silos of the app stores go away. There are really cool specifications being worked on for the future uh, where we will hopefully have this world where you can visit any website and install any website as an app, uh, regardless of your device. Mm -hmm. And it will have offline capabilities and it will have caching capabilities and it will have push notifications and it'll auto update uh, and all these sorts of things. Uh, some of these things have already landed in browsers uh, uh, and these spe other specifications are in the works. And so I really think that that's the world, that's kind of the world that I want to live in where there's this uh, ubiquitous open platform that people can build apps on. And so we're really building a really for that world. Now, having said that. Yeah, for the rest of the world who's living say, in the, in yeah. the present. <laughs> Let me say two other things on this point. One is that Aurelia itself, um, we try not to abstract the browser technologies too much because you get too big of an abstraction, it starts to leak, you get performance problems, and people using your stuff, they have to learn so much more Aurelia to use it than we want them to. We, we actually don't really want you to learn too much Aurelia. We want you to learn the web. Right. Um, and so we we have uh, a bit of abstraction, but not too much. It's just enough, basically, to ensure that our platform doesn't have any reliance on global um, browser APIs or types and things like this. So in theory, uh, somebody out there in the open source community or that wants to do something cool in open source that hasn't yet could take what we call our, our PAL, our platform extraction layer, and re-implement it so that it doesn't rely on the browser but that it relies on some other API, um, some native API. So we have that core abstraction in place, and it can be swapped. We just haven't written any other implementations ourselves outside of the DOM implementation because we are philosophically very focused on the open web right now. And you're not aware of any um, of these frameworks, such as Telerik's framework or the Ionic framework that work or don't work with Aurelia? So the uh, Telerik stuff could be made to work. That would be an example of one that you could implement our PAL for. We just haven't done it yet. Okay. Um, now, Ionic is a very different kind of thing. And Ionic, and this actually comes to the second point, which I wanted to get to, which is uh, Ionic is about uh, hybrid uh, development, where you're really, it's still using all web technology, HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. It's just running inside of a phone gap. Uh, host, if you will. Right. And we actually do have a, a solution to this too. And this really gets a bit into our business model. Uh, we have a commercial product that we're releasing in the near term called Aurelia Interface. And Aurelia Interface is really about, um, solving the problem of, well, first of all, it's just a component library, a, a very attractive component library that you can use to build apps with. 
but it's kind of taking a step beyond that and it's tackling the hybrid mobile space and it's making sure these components are designed to give the native look and feel uh, across Android and iOS specifically in our first release. Hmm. So the idea is you use these components, they're just Aurelia elements, uh, they work with their data binding, they're just like native Aurelia, it's written by the same people that write Aurelia. Uh, and you drop them in and you build an app and when it runs on the iPhone, it looks and feels like iPhone, when it runs on the Android, it looks and feels like Android. And so we've got the widgets, We've got tooling around it uh, related to PhoneGap, and we've also got some additional libraries around uh, platform support and common PhoneGap plugins that help to provide a really nice experience for building hybrid apps. And it's highly optimized for performance. Uh, we have uh, one of our founders our ch- is a chief design officer and has an extensive experience in building iOS and Android apps, and he is uh, just militant about making things look exactly like they look uh, on the native. So we think when we launch this, people are going to be really pleasantly surprised to see um, what can be done in the hybrid mobile space in terms of quality and performance um, with with that library. Yeah, that sort of reminds me of what Telerik did with Kendo UI Mobile, right? Yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit like this, but it's uh, very specific to Aurelia, and there's a few more things uh, going on there. And uh, it's, you know, I can't, I don't have all the details, if you will. It is commercial product, but we are targeting um, everybody from the hobbyist on up. So it will be very uh, reasonably priced, very reasonably priced. Hopefully so much that people won't even think about dropping a few bucks on it. Awesome. Rob, just grazing through the Aurelia library set, Node.js, really? Yes, that's the PAL. PAL-Node.js? Yes, that's what I was just talking about. So PAL is that platform abstraction layer, and you'll see that there's a PAL-browser, yeah. which is our current implementation. We have a placeholder for an implementation based off of Node.js, which is planned to be implemented uh, this year as part of our effort to do server-side rendering of Aurelia. So that's part of the reason that we have that abstraction layer as well, to then enable all of Aurelia to run on the server side to pre-render uh, your entire app. And so we need that, that base abstraction there. And that library you're looking at, PAL Node.js, is the placeholder for the implementation of PAL for Node. Yep. Wow. That's great. It's exciting. I can't, I can't, wait. Um, I can't wait to have that. One of our core team members needs it for uh, his day job, which is actually an important point. Uh, when you were talking about Telerik during the break earlier, there was an excellent point that you made about Telerik, which is that Telerik uses its own controls. And right. that's really actually extremely important when it comes to, I think, any, any technology piece, but especially in open source. And so that's why I'm proud to say that, you know, all of our team members are using really to build real apps. And that's why, um, we haven't done the server side rendering yet because, um, we wanted to wait until one of our core contributors absolutely had to have it for their job. And we wanted them to be connected because we knew that they would feel the pain and have the experience of having to work with our APIs to make that work. And there's something just about human nature, I think, that if you're disconnected, if you're just kind of an ivory tower architect kind of dictating or designing in Word documents, if you will, and you're disconnected from actually having to use it and struggle through that process, it's never really going to turn out as good as if you were, you know, you needed this for your day job and you went and implemented it and then you refined it and then you refined right. it. Uh, and so we have a core team member that's going to be starting work on that pretty soon uh, because he needs it for a project. And um, 
Uh, it's really exciting. So the PAL Node.js library is kind of the placeholder for the first steps of work on that part. It'll be, it's going to be an exciting year. I'm, I'm really stoked about what we're yeah. going to be coming out with this year. Well, that sounds great, Rob. Are we going to see you out there in the conference circuit anytime soon? Uh, I am uh, all over the place. I'm going to be down uh, in Orlando for the angle brackets. Okay. I'm not going to be able to make it to build this year. We'll see if we can get one of our team members out there. I'm not sure. We've had a team member there last year. Um, so where else am I? I don't, I don't know. I've got stuff like every month. It's actually hard to keep track of. It's it's funny. I I used to keep my calendar in my head basically yeah. until the last to the last couple of years, and now I cannot survive without the, the calendar. <laughs> I'm the same way. I you know what's frustrating about that is when somebody asks you a simple question like "What are you doing Wednesday?" I'm like. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, pull yeah. out the phone. <laughs> Take a look. I have to pull out my phone. I have to. Yeah. Oh, well. Rob, thanks very much for being with us here. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure, as always. Definitely. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got